We're going to be looking at a message today I call Lost in Familiar Places. Mark chapter 4 and verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This windstorm is certainly something that we're familiar with. We have looked at it many times before. Uh, it tells a great story, though, this morning about how sometimes familiarity can become a threat to us that works against the strength of our faith. You see, not all of the disciples that were in the boat that day had made their living as commercial fishermen, but some of them had. And they knew this lake, and I, we call it the Sea of Galilee, but actually it's a lake. Inland Sea, some people call it, but it's really not big enough to be called a sea. It's a lake. In fact, today it's called, it's called a lake most often. Um, but many of the people who were there in that boat that day had indeed uh, grown up on that lake. They'd been a part of a family of fishermen who fished it almost every day except on the Sabbath day. Uh, they had been out on this lake when it had... Uh, blown up a storm, as we like to say. They'd seen it before. It was notorious for it. But the storm in our text in Mark chapter 4 that descended on them that night uh, was unusual in its ferocity and its results. When they came to Jesus, the boat was already swamped. And it was in danger of sinking. And these fishermen knew that there were two things to do at that moment in time. They needed to row or bail water. And we'll add a little bit later, uh, they needed to pray too. And, uh, and they would. You see, at this moment in time, this storm had turned the lake into something that they hadn't seen before. So for all of their familiarity with their surroundings, uh, for all that they knew about this lake and all they knew about how to get around on this lake, uh, in spite of all of that, they were lost in a familiar place because the storm had changed everything. I want you to know this morning that life has an amazing way of blowing in a storm that can change everything about our life. Even though we're still living in the same place, we're still maybe working at the same place, we have the same spouse, the same kids, the same family, even though all these things are true, yet things can happen that changes everything what once was routine and comfortable and familiar turns into something frightening because a new set of circumstances has made us lose our sense of direction things are unfamiliar to us even though the place should be familiar I felt this way a few years back when I headed out in the pre-dawn darkness toward a beautiful but small creek bottom full of large oak trees. The towering canopy and the limited underbrush always gave this place a kind of a cathedral setting. It was beautiful, quiet, and on a still morning when it was cool and the mosquitoes weren't too bad, uh, it was a great place to be. But as I approached that bottom, I instead saw the brightness of a clearing ahead. And for a moment... I was disoriented. I mean, remember, it was still dark, but you could see, and I knew it was getting brighter up there, and it was getting bright in a place where it shouldn't be getting bright. 
I, I checked in my thinking, did I go the right way? Yes, I had done the right thing. I was where I was supposed to do. So I went on out into the clearing, and I saw immediately what had happened. Uh, since I had been there, the loggers had come through, and they had cut that bottom out in many, many acres behind it. Only a, a couple of, of the oak trees were still left. I was in my 40s then, and as I stood there watching the sunrise top out over that torn up ground, I realized that though this was a very familiar place, a place I had visited many times, a place I had spent many a morning of enjoyable time, I realized that that hardwood bottom that I knew so well and had enjoyed was gone forever. It would never be back. I'd never see it again in my lifetime. Though I was in a familiar place, I was disoriented. And then disturbed as I realized something precious to me had been taken, gone. You see, there's, there's a reason why the story of this storm on the Sea of Galilee or on Lake Gennesaret is, is so familiar to us. Why it shows up in so many Sunday school lessons and, and in so many sermons. It, it is because it tells us of how we can go along in life in a familiar setting More or less just going along with the routine, doing what we do, coping with things very well because we are pretty highly functional people and we can roll with the punches pretty well and take care of things. And So everything's going along, but then suddenly something happens. Now today we'll consider this passage then under two concepts. And the first thing is to notice uh, the master or the maker of the storm. In verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, if we we consider that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, then we have to be aware of the fact and cognizant of the fact that this windstorm did not occur outside the realm of his providence. Jesus did not send them into this endeavor without knowing what was about to happen. And so right up front then, we notice that this windstorm came to the disciples while they were being obedient to the Lord. They were doing exactly what he had told them to do. They were doing exactly doing it exactly where he had told them to do it. So they were following his instructions. They were doing what the Lord said. And that is important for us because this storm descended on them while they were being obedient to the Lord. You see, not everything that we would call bad or threatening or disturbing comes to us because of some act of disobedience. Now, sometimes it does. We'll see that in a moment. But not everything bad that happens, not everything that comes to us and kind of turns our world upside down is necessarily an act of God's judgment. Remember, Jesus sent the disciples here. He knew what was coming. And they were doing exactly what he had told them to do. And by the way, Jesus was right there with them. There was nothing amiss here in that situation. They were being obedient. 
But still this storm came. Now, when we think about how that storms come to us in a time of obedience, we can also see that sometimes the storms that we encounter in obedience are worse than the ones that we encounter in judgment. I mean, if things have been messed up and maybe messed up for a long time or, 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 or someone is, is messed up in some way and, and then something bad happens, we say, oh yeah, God is chastening me and we know it. And that's a good thing. Uh, because, uh, listen, God is very faithful to us. He does chasten us. But if He chastens us, we always know why. Always. If you're sitting there wondering, well, I wonder if God is chastening me. The answer is probably not. Because when God chastens you, number one, you know God is chasing you. And number two, uh, you know why He's doing it. Um, and that's pretty common when we think about discipline and the way God works with us. And He doesn't chasten us because He's mad at us. He chastens us because He loves us. In fact, the Bible, right of the book of Hebrews, tells us that if we are without chastisement, of which all are partakers, then are you illegitimate children and not sons? And so the, the fact that God is chastening us is a sign of the fact that we are, in fact, His children so when we go through those times where things happen to us because we've done wrong or we've messed up, then that's kind of understandable. And that makes the times where we are facing a storm, though we've been faithful, though we've been obedient, it makes it even worse. I want you to think about a great passage that God spoke to the ancient King Solomon long ago. God appeared to him on a couple of different occasions in a dream at night. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12, says, The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, and that's the temple in Jerusalem. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When? 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 I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, God didn't say if, but when. And so while we can say this morning that not everything that ever happens to us that we would find disturbing or bad or maybe that leaves us feeling lost in familiar places, disoriented, our life uh, turned around somehow. Not everything that happens happens to us by the judgment of God. But we also need to be aware that sometimes God is judging. In this case, he was talking about his judgment on the nation. And let me tell you something. If God judges America, guess what? I'm an American. <laughs> so are you, most of you. I think you are. That means it's going to affect us too. And so we can find ourselves, though we love Jesus, though we're trying to serve Him and trying to live for Him, then the things that might happen as a result of God's judgment may indeed affect our life and certainly will. We think about the things God mentioned, drought. You know, drought doesn't strike in us the terror that it did in the days of sustenance farming because of irrigation. Simple thing. We can turn on the water anytime we need it. Those people couldn't. 
If they found themselves in a drought, you know what it meant? It it meant that their animals were going to starve and that they were going to starve if it lasted long enough. There's no place to go and buy food. They grew what they ate. And a drought is terrifying. Oftentimes a drought was accompanied by great clouds of locusts. And that happened because the locusts would move around because the greenery was drying up. And so they'd eat everything this place. There was nothing left to eat. And they'd swarm then and move to another place and then to another place. So that oftentimes the drought was accompanied by locusts. Well, we don't worry about bugs anymore. We've got pesticides. Hmm. Pestilence. Remember, God mentioned all three of these at once. Not if, but when. When? When there's a drought, when the locusts come, when there's the pestilence. Pestilence is an outbreak of disease that spreads rapidly, first sickening people and then killing them. But again, this causes us to turn not so much to God in our modern world, but to medical science. We need a vaccine, antibiotics, some way to treat it. These things perhaps have been on our mind a little bit more. At least it gets our attention a little bit more after the last year. But I must say to you that as plagues go, in all honesty, as pestilences go, as the Bible calls them here, COVID-19 hardly qualifies. The horrible black plague in Europe, for example, took out 25 million people. That was one-third of the population of Europe at the time. Now that's a plague. Correlate that to modern-day America. That would be over 100 million deaths in the United States alone. Now that, again, would be a plague. So when we think about the historic things that have happened in the world, uh, what we have experienced in the last year uh, really doesn't match up very well with all of that. I'm not saying that it wasn't serious. It was serious. It continues to be serious. I'm just saying it's not serious on a a biblical scale, shall we say, or on a historical scale. All of these things seldom cause modern humanity to think of the judgment of God. Uh, And so let's put it in a different way. When the grocery stores are empty because the supply chain is out and the warehouses are depleted, uh, we've seen that. We've, we've seen that right here in Cabot, America. When crops then are destroyed, so let's take it another level, say that crops are destroyed so that not only are the warehouses empty and there's no food, but then the crops would be destroyed and there's nothing coming. Uh, it'd be months out if it could get here by the time it could be processed and canned and, and put on shelves. I mean, we're talking months. Livestock are wiped out. There's no gas to buy. No electricity. No computers. What will we do then? Does that sound far-fetched to us? I want us to understand this morning and think for just a second, for a few moments, 
about how dependent we are on technology and how fragile that technology is and how it can be taken away from us just like that. Just like that. And it all goes away. And so while what God was saying in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 to Solomon certainly would have got his attention. What if, when I, when I sin, not if, but when, when, I, who sends it? God does. When, when I send a drought, when I send a pestilence, when I send the locust, then what do you do? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from my wicked, their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and I will Forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Oh. You just have to wonder this morning how much of this God would have to do before it would bring us all to our knees seeking God. So when we think about the storm that came upon them, we need to think about the maker of the storm. In a very real sense, this storm was a proving ground for what the disciples were about to experience. Jesus was changing the world. (laughs) He did change the world. Everything familiar to these disciples was about to be changed and the threat would be everywhere. Jesus had sent them across the lake, but he was soon to be sending them around the world. And everywhere they went, there'd be a storm. Every day would bring a storm. They would be in constant threat and constant peril. They would go out in obedience, doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And yet the storm would be for a lifetime. It's no wonder this story was so popular and remains popular today. Early Christians often used symbols of their faith. We know about the fish. Uh, You also know about the X, the letter X, which in Greek is the letter chi or key. Uh, You might have seen Xmas and thought they were taking Christ out of Christmas. But now let's remember that the symbol X was an ancient, ancient, ancient symbol for the name of Christ. Some of you say, well, I still don't like it. Okay, that's fine. Uh, But uh, I don't say Xmas either, by the way. But let's just understand that was an ancient symbol for the name of Christ. But another great symbol they used was a symbol of a boat in the waves. Because, you see, it reminded these people that Jesus was with them in the storms. That though they might be facing horrible persecution, Jesus was still there. The storms would leave the disciples feeling as if the Lord was indifferent to their situation. Don't don't you care that we're dying, they said. This was a cry of astonished disbelief. They weren't doubting his power as much as they were doubting his concern. Jesus was sound asleep. And the crashing waves and the pitching boat didn't bother him a bit. What a contrast between Jesus' peace and the disciples' panic. One writer said, the Holy Trinity never has to call an emergency session. (laughs) I like that. In the Old Testament character, Gideon was chosen to be one of the judges. In Judges chapter 6, an angel appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. 
At that particular moment, Gideon was hiding from a people known as the Midianites who had attacked Israel and invaded them. Uh, They were swooping down upon them from all sides and they'd see them uh, with grain or something valuable. They'd come along and steal it. So here was Gideon hiding and here's an angel saying, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon responded, If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? We understand that feeling, Gideon. We've been there too. Here we are serving Jesus, loving him and loving his church, advancing his kingdom in the world and trying to do what's right. It's difficult to us to understand why a windstorm then would swoop down on us in our obedience, why something would come into my life that would just turn everything upside down. And it's even more difficult for us to understand why God doesn't do anything to prevent it. We can look in this story in Mark chapter 4 this morning and be reminded that sometimes God doesn't prevent the storm because He sends it. He sends it. The maker of the storm. Now I want us to see the ministry of the storm. Let's read the text again. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it's already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do not care that we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obeys him? Because we know the maker of the storm, then we know that when it comes into our life, and even though we are left feeling disoriented because suddenly our life has changed and we feel lost in familiar places, yet even though this is true, we know the maker of the storm. And so we conclude that this must be for our good or for His glory, or both. And because of this, we need to learn then that the maker of the storm has His way with the storm and he will calm it when it has done his work there's several things that the windstorm did for the disciples of Jesus and the first thing is is that it drove them to him In a way, this is a tribute to the severity of their crisis because these men were professionals and they knew how to deal with this storm. And besides that, they were men and and men just don't like admitting that we need help. It's just in our nature. We like to do everything ourselves. Uh, No, I've got it. Uh, And yet, it just tells us how severe this storm must have been because it drove them to Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't a fisherman. (laughs) Although they had learned if he told them to let down their nets, they needed to listen. (laughs) Uh, He hadn't spent his lifetime out there, but they they knew some things. So they run to him. And we're so self-sufficient and so technology-driven in our world today that anything that brings us to Jesus Christ, admitting our weakness, confessing our helplessness, and reaffirming our dependence on him is, in a way, a blessing. When we find ourselves lost then in familiar places because the storm has changed everything around us, we acutely feel our helplessness and our weakness. 
But here's a great thing. Jesus didn't wake up at the howling wind or the tossing waves or the rising water. But he was awakened by the touch of a trembling hand. That's all it took. And he immediately responded when they cried out to him. The Apostle Paul would say, I will glory in my weakness because he said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so in the storm, when this storm descended on them and changed the world and turned everything upside down for them, they were reminded that Jesus was near. We have to just be amazed in a sense almost at the fact that when they wanted to talk to Jesus, all they had to do was say, hey, wouldn't it be great just to be able to reach down the pew and say, hey, 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 Jesus, let's talk. I know, folks, we can't see him with these eyes, and he's not physically with us. But listen, don't miss this. He is spiritually as much with us, and even more so than he is physically. Because he lives inside of us as believers, and he is always there where we can reach out to him and call upon him. But how often do we leave him out? Turn into everything in the world but him. So the first thing they learned was that Jesus was near and they could call upon him. The second thing they learned then is that they had a problem with their faith. Jesus said it in verse 40, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They had a storm problem, but their faith problem was a bigger problem. Even if they died, it wouldn't defeat them, you see, because they would claim the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ. But Jesus knew that the way that their world was changing and the rapidity that it, in which it was changing, the fact that they were going to be sent out in a whole new way to live a whole new life, he knew that it would be impossible for them to face all of this without their faith. They had a faith crisis. And while that storm might have taken their lives, just think about it what it would be like to try to face life without faith. This isn't something a lot of folks would have to wonder about. And maybe some of you in this building today or some of you at home are, are trying to live your life without your faith in God. Maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I want you to know this morning, a storm can turn your life upside down. A storm can give you a threat. But to go through life without faith in Jesus Christ is the most dangerous decision that you can make. Because it is dangerous on an eternal scale. This isn't about losing our home or losing our job or our failed relationship, folk. This is about losing our soul for eternity. As Jesus warned about what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul. And it's a great time for us to consider the question and for me to bring that question to you this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your faith then in Him? Do you know that you have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ? I can't possibly tell you how perilous it is when you think about how quickly life can change and how quickly life can go away. I can't tell you how perilous it is to live your life knowing that you need to be saved and yet refusing to do so. You teenagers that are here, young people, 
Your parents have worked so hard to shield you and to protect you. But they can't protect you from all the dangers. Sooner or later, they're going to give you a set of car keys. Sooner or later, they're going to give you a cell phone if they haven't already. You're going to be turned loose and you're going to be out there facing a lot of perilous situations in the world. You already are. They don't keep you at home 24 hours a day for the most part. Sooner or later, they're going to take you out to that place called school and drop you off at about 8 o'clock. Then it won't be long before you're going to work and all of these other influences are out there and all these other things are out there and life is so, so very fragile and it can go away in an instant. As death finds you, young people, eternity claims you. And to go through life without faith is the most dangerous thing that you can do. Eternally dangerous. But then to try to live as a Christian with a weak faith in an ever-changing world. I'm afraid that we don't see sometimes how dangerous that really is. The Old Testament prophet Daniel went through a time. I mean, certainly his life was turned, turned upside down when he was taken out of Jerusalem and now he's a captive in Babylon and serving the king. But after a while, you see, even that gets routine. I mean, it, this is the life that you're going to live. And so he knew what he was going to do. He knew what his life was. He had his position and, and God had greatly blessed him and, and he was working and serving and living his life and, and doing as best he could and doing quite well, by the way. But he had enemies, and one day those enemies decided they'd do something. We're tired of Daniel. And so they made up a rule and got the king to sign it that for 30 days, one month, nobody could pray to anybody except the king. 30 days, one month, they outlawed prayer. <laughs> I wonder what had happened in America if they did that. You know, how many of us would just say, no. I wonder how many people there'd be that'd have to admit that maybe in the last month they really hadn't prayed that much, if at all. One month, though, they said to Daniel, no prayer. They said it to the whole nation, no prayer. But what did Daniel do? He kept right on praying. He didn't go in his closet. He went out on the porch where everybody could see him, and he prayed every morning, noon, and night. He violated the law that said no prayer for 30 days. What they do when they caught him? Didn't take them long to catch him. He was doing it out in front of everybody. Well, they, they sent the police down. They wrote him out a ticket and gave him a fine. <laughs> Your Bible don't read that way. You know what? Mine doesn't either. They had a pit full of lions. Ravenous lions. Man-eaters. And the penalty for praying for 30 days to be thrown in a pit full of lions where he'd be devoured. You see something in that story? Daniel feared the lack of prayer more than he feared the lions. He was more afraid of what not praying to God for 30 days would do to him than what the lions would do to him. Sometimes I think we fear the wrong things. We're looking in the wrong direction. And if we are fearing other things but we're not fearing the Lord, then that's a faith problem. It was a lack of faith. He knew that he had to depend on God 
He knew he needed God in his life. So there he was on his knees praying to God, counting on God to take care of him, moving in faith. And so we see that the storm then taught them some things. It, 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 it drove them to Jesus Christ. It revealed to them their, their lack of faith and the fact that they had a faith problem. Their fear was just a symptom. Their problem was a faith problem. And then the storm gave them a new understanding of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 says, They feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who can this be? You notice very quickly that Jesus rebuked them for fearing the storm, but he did not rebuke them for fearing him. This fear was produced not by the storm, but by the calm. I mean, they were afraid of the storm, but now they fear exceedingly. Why? Because the storm is gone. I remember hearing an old evangelist many years ago who said something I've never forgotten. He said uh, that if God began to work in the average church today, he said it'd scare everybody to death. And it's a fact. I've seen that happen. I've seen churches begin to grow and they'd get scared. Man, what are we going to do? All these people, man. Oh God, please scare us that way. Here's a storm and, and the storm is gone and now they're afraid. What are they afraid of? Now they're afraid of the calm because of who had made the calm. The fear that they had is a reverential awe at the power of God. And oh, how we need that today. It is easily replaced by familiarity because we don't get that feeling, that incredible awe at the power of God when we're going through the routine of life and we're coping so well. But when the storm comes and changes everything, when we find ourselves lost in familiar places, though we live in the same house, work in the same job, go to the same schools, doing the same things, but somehow... Everything has changed and that sense of unfamiliarity and disorientation begins to work to drive us to fear when all of those things are happening and it drives us to Jesus Christ. Guess what we find out? We find out His grace is sufficient. We find out that God is faithful. That His power is capable. That He, as the Bible says, is able. They learned some great things in the storm. They learned to go to Jesus. They learned they had a faith problem. But then they got a new understanding of Jesus' grace and sufficiency and of his power. It would be awesome if I could tell you this was a watershed kind of a moment. I mean, you know about the Great Divide. Once you cross the Great Divide, the water always goes to the Pacific. On the other side, it's flowing to the Atlantic. And out of that then comes that kind of concept we talk about. It's a watershed moment for me. That is, I've passed something, and from now on, everything's going to be different. It was going this way, but now it's going to turn around. This is a watershed moment. It's never going to be like, I'm going to be different, changed forever. Uh, but there were other nights and other storms that would move these same disciples to fear 
They had a lot to learn over the disciple over their time with Jesus Christ. There was going to be a lot of times where they struggled. You, you can think immediately the time where Jesus uh, didn't get in the boat with them, but he told them, uh, you go across and then I'll join you later. <laughs> uh, they had no idea how that story was going to end. I mean, uh, only Jesus could say, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with you in a bit. And then he does by walking out on the water while they're in the midst of the storm. And again, woeing against the waves, rowing against the waves. I'll get it right. They got scared again. And you see that repeating a pattern, repeating again and again and again throughout their life. You see, what I want us to see this morning is that there's not going to be a place in your life, some experience in your life, where you're going to get to that and say, okay, I'm never going to have another faith crisis. I'm always going to be able to depend on God. I'm not going to let my faith uh, get weak again. No, listen, there's a reason why the Bible talks about we walk by faith. And the reason is because every step of faith and then it's going to lead us to another step of faith. And then another step of faith. And then another one. We make a faith decision this week. But guess what? There's going to be another one to come at another time. There's a storm to get through today. But there's another storm down the road. And every storm then. Every time that things change. Every time that we get all upset. It reminds us of how we need to grow in our faith. Our growing faith means that every storm of life brings us to the place where we learn that there is more to trust God for. More to trust God for. Wow. You mean I can trust Him with my kids? <laughs> I can trust Him with my marriage? Oh, man. I can trust Him with my job? You mean I can trust him with my business? I can trust him with my health. Yeah. Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he said to us, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's the last one. Anybody in the service today ever lost your keys? Anybody? You've lost your keys? Can't believe y'all lost your keys. Anybody ever lost your cell phone? Nobody under 25 has ever lost your cell phone. It's welded to your hand or to your ear, I think. But all of us older folks lose our cell phones pretty regularly. At least, you know, if we don't have them on vibrate, you can at least call them. Honey, would you call my cell phone? That's uh, almost nightly. I lost my keys this morning before I came to church. You know where I found them? Last place I looked. Ain't that always the way? Why is death going to be the last enemy that shall be destroyed? Because it's the last one. Folk, after death, there is no more enemy to face. We go on to victory and victory when Jesus Christ for all eternity. There's no more enemy after death. The last enemy we have to deal with is death. 
And what I want us to see when the Bible tells us we live by faith, the just shall live by faith, and we walk by faith, then it's telling us that our life is going to be a continuing state where we learn, we take a step of faith that leads us to another step of faith, and then to another one. One step is going to require another one. And and maybe our faith gets weak, and we find it out. And guess what? We've got to get right back out there and get on that faith track again. Because we'll never outgrow our need for faith in this life. One day, thank God, our faith is going to end in sight. Amen. Oh yeah, the last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death. But what an enemy it is. Now I'd be remiss as a preacher of the gospel if I didn't remind you that there's a pretty good chance that we're going to go out with a shout And when I'm talking about going out with the shout, just for you in case some of you might not know that terminology, I'm talking about the time when Jesus said that there's going to be uh, the trump of God is going to sound and, and there's going to be the shout and we're going to go out. That's called the rapture. And if we're alive and remain on this earth, when that happens, then if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to go out. You'll be caught up to be with the Lord. I don't know who's going to get all my insurance money. (laughs) Because all my family is saved. Isn't that a great precious promise? I ain't worried about it. Don't care. If that happens and we all go home together and what a day. We'll wake up just faster than a twinkling light. We'll be there and boom, man. What a day indeed. Glorious day. But you know, there's a good possibility as well that we may die. And that can happen to us at any time. Death is the last enemy. Can we trust God with our death? Do we really believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or is that just some religious talk? You remember it was the disciples who brought up death to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, don't you see we're dying? (laughs) Jesus wasn't thinking about that at all. I'm dying down here. You see, as we go along in our walk of faith, we find out there's more to trust God for. But our faith is growing when we also learn that there's more to trust God with. I'm trusting God for more, but I'm trusting Him with more because my faith is growing stronger. And if the last enemy that we're going to face is death, then you better face it with faith. Strong faith. You want to be facing that last enemy with doubt, with unknown, I'm I'm not sure, I don't know. Uh -uh. This is one thing you must be absolutely certain about. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? I'm going to close out today with an old hymn. It was one of my favorites growing up. It's based on this passage. Master, the tempest is raging. 
The billows are tossing high. Sky is o'ershadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How can you lie asleep? When each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep. Then came the chorus. The winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and sky. They all shall sweetly obey his will. Peace be still. Peace be still. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace. Peace. Be still. second verse I'll just read it I'm about out of singing voice master with anguish of spirit I bow in my grief today the depths of my sad heart are troubled awaken and save I pray torrents of sin and of anguish sweep o'er my sinking soul and I perish I perish dear master oh hasten and take control We know the maker of the storm, but perhaps we haven't thought enough about the ministry of the storm, how it drives us to Jesus Christ so that we call upon him. Most of all, how we get that new awareness of who he is as we realize that, yes, we've had a faith problem, and maybe my faith problem was bigger than my storm problem. I didn't so much have a storm problem as I had a faith problem. But oh, to know that he comes to us in the storm. He responds to our cry. And we learn to fear him even as we trust him. Let's stand together, please.